Immigration Advocates Network podcast. Welcome to the podcast by the Immigration Advocates Network. My name is Pat Malone, and I'm staff attorney at the Immigration Advocates Network. Our guest today is Angie Junk. Welcome, Angie. Hi. Thank you for having me. Angie's here from the Immigrant Legal Resource Center, where she is staff attorney who specializes in the intersection between immigration and criminal law and juvenile justice. Today, she'll be talking about immigration detainers. So let's start right in with the first question, which is, what is an immigration detainer? Well, the technical definition under um, federal law is that an immigration detainer is really a form that's sent to local law enforcement agencies, advises those agencies that ICE intends to investigate an individual in their custody for possible deportation. The, the detainer then requests that the law enforcement agency notify ICE when the individual is due to be released and that they continue to hold that individual beyond the time that they're scheduled for release for up to 48 hours, excluding the weekends and federal holidays. And that gives ICE the opportunity to decide um, whether to take that person into custody and to apprehend them. Um, I just also would like to say from an organizing standpoint, detainers are really the linchpin of the ICE's programs. Um, that intersect with state and local criminal law enforcement, such as Secure Communities, the 287G program, and another less known but um, prevalent program called the Criminal Alien Program. And what these programs do is help ICE locate and identify non-citizens in criminal custody. On the other hand, the detainers are the practical tool that keep that person in jail so that ICE can apprehend them. So if law enforcement decides that they won't enforce ICE holds, then the whole system collapses. And the immigration detainers have been in the news lately. What are some of the changes that have been implemented by ICE or DHS in the past year? Well, I think it's best to kind of share with what's happened in the last couple of years because we really haven't had any guidance at a federal level around detainers. I think advocates have been in the darkest to what are the procedures for issuing a detainer and what are those standards. In August, in August 2010, um, ICE issued an interim detainer guidance, and this was the first time that we really actually saw this, any kind of federal guidance on the issue. And some, some points that people might be interested in knowing about it is that it does provide some instruction, but very limited instruction about how, how immigration officers should handle detainers. Um, it states that detainers should only be issued if a person has been arrested on an independent criminal basis, not just because of their immigration status. And this arose out of a lawsuit in Sonoma where um, the local sheriff's department was routinely um, in a car with ICE officers and trying to find individuals whom they could take into custody for whom that they would never charge with a crime but use specifically to just issue what we call an immigration detainer. The memo also from ICE at the national level talks about how they shouldn't be issuing detainers against someone that might be arrested but not yet convicted for a traffic offense. Of course, though, there is a lot of broad exceptions that eat up that rule, such as someone might be, have a prior order of deportation, which is, can be often the case um, if someone has a prior criminal conviction or that they're found to be a danger to national security or public safety. Um, there's also some few, uh, few procedural guidelines about when or how a detainer should be issued. Parts of that is just about reiterating some of the points that I just said, um, including, you know, assuming custody 
much sooner than the 48 hours are off and, and being really careful about issuing detainers against lawful permanent residents. I wanted to also share, though, most recently in December 2011, ICE um, did release a new ICE detainer form. It's called the I-247. And we were hoping as advocates that they were going to release greater guidance that was in writing, but they didn't do that. They feel that this ICE form solves a lot of the issues. And some of the um, changes that this ICE form highlights is that, um, one, they now have a requirement that the form be given to the detainee. Previously, they didn't have a procedure for even informing the detainee about the ICE detainer, um, and it, it provides a notice to them in multiple languages. Um, there's a, there's quite a bit of emphasis that law enforcement may only hold an individual for a period not to exceed 48 hours. I think there's still lack of clarity of when that 48 hours is triggered, however. Um, and it provides directions for how people who have civil rights or civil liberties complaints or that may be victims of crimes or U.S. citizens that have some hotlines now that people can call to be able to make those complaints. And I think the final thing is that it, talk, it leaves a few options about leaving detainers only operative upon conviction of a crime. And finally, the existence of a detainer shouldn't impact local decisions around conditions of detention, custody classification, work or quarter assignments. So those are some of the, 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 the main points that I think that have been changed by this ICE hold form. Now, if ICE is able to implement these changes properly, does that address all of the concerns that advocates have with the implementation of the detainers, or what are some of the other concerns that you're seeing in the field? Unfortunately, no. Um, I think that ICE believes that this ICE form is completely clear in its guidance for local law enforcement and people that are routinely um, enforcing these immigration detainers, but uh, I think that we'll continue to see that detainers, as in the past, are widely misused not only by ICE, but Border Patrol and local and state law enforcement agencies. And and some of the issues that we see is, one, that ICE has not in the past provided law enforcement agencies with adequate information about what a detainer means or how to respond. Now, they say that they're going to be doing training of law enforcement, but what is really um, concerning to us is that the federal government continually perpetuates the view that ICE detainers are mandatory and that they're not requests. And even the new ICE form continues to perpetuate that, that myth out there because it, while it uses the word request at parts, in parts of that form, it does relegate back to the language of the regulation at 287.7 that says, you shall not hold more than 48 hours. And we know that ICE at the national level has continually responded to the question of, are these ICE holds mandatory? And they've said, well, the regulation says shall not hold more than 48 hours. The other thing that we have seen and we, we believe that we'll continue to see and we'll be monitoring is that there is been really um, no standard of proof for how detainers are issued, and it really results in the overuse of detainers. ICE just a couple of weeks ago announced that their their standard is reasonable believe or reasonable suspicion, and it's really unclear which one of it one of those standards it is, and how the field um, actually knows what that standard means in practice as to who they can issue a detainer for and not. Um, and the example of the issues that we've seen around this lack of standard of proof is that we see, like through secure communities alone, 3,600. U.S. citizens have been put in removal proceedings. We see lawful permanent residents who are not deportable have ice holes. 
So those are that's very concerning to us. That they they don't have a process in which they can correctly vet whether or not someone's actually removable from the United States. One of the final issues is that individuals are frequently held unlawfully in jail beyond the time authorized by a detainer. They only are allowed to hold a person uh, 48 hours after the time that the person would otherwise be released, excluding weekends and federal holidays. One thing that this ICE holds form does not resolve is when that 48 hours is triggered. And we've been working with agencies across the United States to say, well, this 48 hours isn't triggered until we notify ICE. So we have a, an example here in California where a jail said, well, we didn't notify ICE, and they basically hold, held someone for over a week, and they said that that 48 hours is never triggered until we call ICE. And so that person, these people can be potentially held for weeks upon weeks just based on that notion that they don't have to enforce that 48-hour rule until they notify So those are some of the main issues that we, we have. Um, I think the final thing, though, is also about the disparate treatment that detainers lead to immigrants in the criminal justice system. There's studies that have been shown that non-citizens who have detainers serve disproportionately longer sentences than um, individuals who are U- U.S. citizens um, because it's really used to raise or deny their, their bail. People are routinely denied rehabilitative relief um, from criminal courts, first-time drug programs that are end up used against them in immigration proceedings. And they're at, overall at a disadvantage in the criminal justice system because they're, they're pleading guilty at higher rates. So these are some of the issues that we're concerned with and that we continue to um, present to ICE um, as immigrants are continually to be violating their, their due process rights as a result of these issues of detainers. Mm. And I imagine it's a challenge insofar as the clients come to you late in the game. There's very short notice or difficulty in in letting an immigration attorney know that a person has had a detainer issued against him or her. So how how do immigration attorneys find out that this has been issued against the client? And at what point in the process do clients reach us? Where do we step in? ICE is only going to give a copy of the detainer to the immigrant under this new ICE form. So the only time that a person, even criminal defense counsel or an immigration attorney, will know that an immigrant has an immigration detainer is if they've apprised their legal representative of that. Um, and even the – this has been an issue for us because we believe that criminal defense attorneys should have this information that, to be able to adequately defend their clients in, in court. Um, what we have tended to see is that clients usually only come to immigration attorneys after an ICE hold has already been executed and they are in removal proceedings. Um, I think there's going to be a trend, and we've started to see some of it, that immigrants are, are increasingly contacting attorneys while they're in criminal proceedings because they are now alerted to the issue that they will have maybe an immigration consequence um, and that they would be put in removal proceedings, especially with this notice that's in the immigration detainer. So I think that that is something that, that there may be a prize from that. I think the key thing, though, for immigration attorneys to understand and to know that it is critical to be there at the front end because criminal defense counsel does have a duty to advise um, competently and affirmatively of the immigration consequences of police and defend against them. And I think that the best outcomes in these cases to protect a client from deportation is when criminal defense counsel and immigration attorneys work together to kind of prevent, prevent an immigration disaster um, from coming out in, of the criminal proceedings. 
And what can an immigration attorney do when a detainer is anticipated or on behalf of a client who is being held on a detainer? Well, I, I think there's a few things that people should do. As I mentioned before, I think it's, a, it's important to work with criminal defense counsel or have an attorney with expertise in the immigration consequences of crimes mitigating those consequences of a criminal case while they're occurring. I think that this is also an opportunity for us to really um, investigate the immigration defense options for the individual and start preparing the removal case, including a possible application for prosecutorial discretion if the client might not have any other avenue to stay in the United States. And I think that the sooner that we ask for prosecutorial discretion for life, um, the better off the clients will be. We've also had a lot of immigration attorneys file their G-28, their notice of appearances, immediately so that they can prevent their client from being transferred out of the area of responsibility and so that they continue to maintain that case so that the client can be near family and continue to kind of fight adequately their immigration removal. Um, if the, finally, if there's any reason that a person should not have an ICE detainer after doing immigration analysis, for example, if they have a claim to U.S. citizenship or they're a lawful permanent resident, they're not deportable, then I think we really advocate for documenting the reasons why and contacting ICE as soon as possible to have the ICE hold dropped. Um, and again, even if the person's not removable, we definitely want to um, ask ICE to exercise the prosecutorial discretion if the facts merit that in that particular case. And what if a client is being held for more than the 48 hours on a detainer? What can an immigration attorney do? In those types of cases, there's several different avenues that people have taken. Some, you know, some of the shortest and easiest ways is to call your local sheriff's department and to advise them that they're in violation of um, federal law for holding that person. The ICE detainer form informs um, immigrants that that's what they should be doing if, if they believe that there's a violation in that. Well, the other avenue is really um, around litigation. Um, uh, attorneys, criminal defense attorneys and immigration attorneys have filed writ of habeas corpus, um, even filed claims of false imprisonment on these cases. Unfortunately, what ends up happening in some of them is that as soon as you've done all the paperwork and scheduled this, ICE comes to pick up the individual, and so then your motion is moot. But in the particularly egregious cases, we know that national organizations like the National Immigrant Law Center and the ACLU have been really filing lawsuits that for damages around these types of cases. And um, I think they've been settling for some good sums of money around the country in Colorado and New York to kind of tell law enforcement that you cannot violate immigrants' rights with these 48-hour rules. So those are the, the different kinds of steps that people do in terms of combating those violations. And at the beginning of the podcast, you mentioned that this is all part of uh, ICE's many programs at state and local level to bring uh, federal immigration enforcement into communities. What can communities or nonprofit organizations do to address ICE pressures on local enforcement to cooperate with detainers? Well, I think as people have heard, there's been a, a huge movement to fight the Secure Communities Program, and we've seen localities across the United States from, you know, Washington, D.C., Arlington, Virginia, and where I'm at, Santa Clara County, California, San Francisco, you know, say that they want to opt out of this program. And we have states like Illinois, Massachusetts, and, and New York um, also ask to opt out or, or suspend their participation in these programs. And 
what's become clear to us is that the federal government is continuing on its path to expand ESCOM and that they'll be fully operational um, by 2013. And so over the last year, we a lot of jurisdictions across the country have turned to look at how we can further limit the cooperation between local law enforcement and federal immigration authorities. And we've looked at ICE holds because they're not mandatory and there's no incentive um, in, in many of these cases for law enforcement to continue to um, abide or comply with these these ICE immigration detainers. And so um, cities like New York City, um, Santa Clara County, San Francisco, Cook County have passed these detainer policies that basically state that they will not submit to ICE detainers in certain circumstances, or not at all. And um, we were part of an effort here in Santa Clara County where um, we were able to get the broadest detainer policy in the country where it specifically says that it will never enforce an immigration detainer until it gets fully reimbursed for the costs associated with them. And even if the costs should be reimbursed by the federal government at some point in time, that they would use their discretion only to enforce detainers against those individuals who are convicted of serious and violent felonies under our California penal code. And that would be in line with the, the specific mandates of ESCOM as it was designed and, and passed by Congress. And so we're working with a, a number of national organizations to create a wave of these detainer campaigns to institute these policies across the country to really um, fight the immigration enforcement at a local level. And so um, I think that there's various reasons for counties to be able to do this, everything from a human rights perspective to a community impact of separating families to public safety, creating trust within communities, to the fact that these are unfunded mandates that localities are bearing the high cost of, to racial profiling um, and filing to due process, undermining the constitutional rights of immigrants in this country. Well, thank you, Angie. Is there anything else that you wanted to add or explain further? Um, I, I think that part of our work is to continue to fight these cases on an individual basis um, and to, to advocate for change in that. But I think that we also to see an overall change of how um, the federal government views immigration detainers and local law enforcement detainers. Um, it's really important to engage in these larger campaigns to um, fight the use of them as a deportation dragnet for so many immigrants in the United States. And so we hope that a lot of immigration advocates and attorneys will take part in these national campaigns to um, really break ISIS holds on our community. Well, I hope so, too. For more information about immigration detainers, people can go to www.immigrationadvocates.org, and the easiest way to find our resources would be to enter the search term, immigration detainers, in quotation marks, in the search box. And you will see that we have substantial resources about immigration detainers throughout our library. Thank you so much, Angie Junk, for joining us today. And thank you to the Immigrant Legal Resource Center for volunteering your time. And I hope that we will have a chance to talk again. Good luck in your work.